tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It is a trend from New York to Seattle, shrinking demand for office space, growing demand for housing. All this week, we've been exploring the need to grow our housing inventory, and converting office space to residential is one of the options. It can extend the life of older structures and produce more energy-efficient buildings. It can, in some cases, be cheaper and faster than building from the ground up. We had a conversation recently with the new director of Honolulu's Department of Planning and Permitting about the city's thinking around this conversion trend. Some developers are looking to use a new affordable housing tool referred to as 201H to be exempt from building and zoning requirements. So how can the city be more proactive? The urban core is in flux as stores are shuttered and others eye the downtown potential short and long term. Here's DPP Director Donna Puna. It's important, yeah, especially during COVID, right? Everyone was working from home, and then the office building seemed vacant, and there might be better uses for it. I think it's definitely an opportunity to build more much-needed affordable housing. And as we're coming out of COVID, I think a lot of people are also coming back to the offices, so, so it's kind of unsettled, but it's definitely a good way to provide more affordable housing units. So for DPP, we're working with the developers, Certain issues are coming up, but we're working through it. I think there's some issues about, like, light and ventilation. There's a bill that is before the council today. And so things like that, it's just kind of working through how we permit these types of uses, which are kind of different and new. So we're working through it. We work with a developer and our staff to make sure that this makes sense, that health and safety are accounted for. Well, you know, when you talk about uh, light and ventilation, right, I mean, we're really talking windows in buildings, commercial buildings that really didn't need to meet that type of code. But when you stick residential in there, it's a different animal. I mean, do we need to draft up new rules for adaptive reuse uh, in our city? I mean, because other cities across the country, you know, are dealing with this now. Yeah, so I think it is. It's about adapting to these newest developments. And so, I think for that specifically, the light and ventilation, mechanical ventilation and light seem to be accepted under the building code, but somehow it's not allowed under our housing code. So as far as health and safety under the building code, it seems to be allowed. And I think this bill begins to try to address that and to allow mechanical ventilation. Right. I mean, you know, we're talking plumbing systems, air conditioning Mm -hmm. systems, electrical that might have to be uh, switched out. So it's a little different animal. Mm -hmm. uh, But we are seeing change in downtown Honolulu, right? We're we're talking about hotels and uh, housing for seniors and dorms. One of the projects, Douglas Emmett, you know, they're exempt from certain things like open space. But, yeah, certainly it's a a conversation that we need to have if if we're going to change the landscape downtown. Right. Adaptive rate reuse, and then we need to adapt, too, to these changes. Also, because we're basically having these projects in the urban core where density is very uh, high already, it's important when these projects come up that they have very 
close by neighbors, and we need to account for that. We, I mean, we really need to think about this project by project, but there are always these issues with how circulation around these projects will affect nearby existing properties. So it's a whole kind of newer area that we're working through, but I think that if we all work together, we can we can make it work. And I understand that there's a lot of discussion about, yes, bringing families down into that urban core mm-hmm. uh, and taking back the streets, you will, you know, because there's a lot of emphasis on cleaning up, let's say, like Chinatown, you know, with crime and homelessness, and uh, there's been a lot of headway in that area, but you need other things to follow. It's kind of like weed and seed, right? You've got to help nurture so that these communities can thrive. Exactly. Exactly. We want uh, very livable, walkable communities, and we're basically project by project uh, trying to redevelop and make these communities. What's the biggest challenge uh, on that front for you? You know, I, I know you're dealing with the solar backlog and, and the permits just in general, but is there anything special about adaptive reuse? I think it's just, it, it really is about uh, working together. Because it's new in some areas, we have to understand what the challenges are for the developer, the challenges for the community. So it's just kind of blending all those together and making sure that we all come out together happy and pleased with with the outcome. You know, you don't want to give away the store, uh, but we do need housing Mm -hmm. and we do need to revitalize, you know, some of these areas, you know, the blight areas that have been maybe neglected or or overrun by crime. It's kind of a dance, I guess, that we've Mm got to navigate. Right. And then we have the rail coming through, too. So. A lot of these areas are in good proximity to the station, so it's a good opportunity to work on these types of projects. And are you looking at another city, you know, for a model for this type of reuse? Yeah, I mean, we look at, whenever these issues come up, we look at other jurisdictions and see if they've, it's always great if someone's done it before us, so it helps to show us the path forward. But I guess it's mostly when these projects come in, these issues come up, and we, we try to tackle them as we see them. What would you say to property owners who already live downtown in the urban core, whether it's, you know, Chinatown or in downtown Honolulu, as we go through this change? Because if you you walk around downtown, a lot of places are boarded up, you know, a kind of a sign that something's underfoot. Yeah, I would say get involved. There's plenty of opportunities, you know, through public meetings and public hearings, or just let us know, like, if you're concerned about a project that's coming through. It's always important. We want to hear everyone's concerns, and we want this to be about everyone who's involved, not just the project or the developer, but everyone who can be affected by it. So get engaged either at the neighborhood board level or at the hearings at the Honolulu City Council? Yes, or even send us an email. You know, we have a lot of resources on our website. We welcome any kind of comments or questions that would be helpful. That was DPP Director Donna Puna talking with us about adaptive reuse and how it's looking at what changes need to be made to our building and residential code to become more flexible. Tomorrow we conclude our adaptive reuse week with a conversation with the area council member. check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Today uh, focuses on a story where the housing proposals are at this stage of the legislative session. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. 
Yeah, so we've got a deadline on Friday? Yes, we have a deadline on Friday. Um, Without going into the details, essentially bills have to be in their final committee in whatever house they're in uh, by then or they die. So it's a big deadline. Uh, A lot of things could fall by the wayside. As of today, there are still a lot of bills alive, and really that's what we're looking at. The key is everybody seems to agree we need a lot of new housing. Uh, The issue is a lot of people have different ideas about it, and there's no real coherent uh, plan or push in the legislature. So how are Governor Green's proposals doing? Governor Green's proposals are uh, doing only okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. A main, a main, a main proposal he has is for in legislation is to uh, provide a, a loan fund for people who need money for security deposits for apartments. That piece of a bill is moving through. It seems alive still as of today and looks like it could be could be moving forward. Uh, the bill that includes that uh, fund, uh, loan fund for uh, security deposits also had a piece it would give a it would have given a uh, general excise tax break to um, developers of affordable housing, developers that are required to develop affordable housing as part of bigger projects. We hear about this a lot, reserve housing. Uh, That piece of the bill, this GE tax credit or tax break, um, would have been, was eliminated. So um, about half of the bill has made it through, and, but that's still alive. The bigger question is, you know, the governor discussed setting aside about a billion dollars for um, affordable housing through the Hawaii Housing and Development and Finance Corporation. Um, That money is probably uh, not going to happen. Instead, the Hawaii Senate Ways and Means Chairman uh, Donovan De La Cruz says, yes, we'll give a billion dollars, but we want it in a different way. Uh, Senator De La Cruz is saying, why don't we invest a bunch of money, about 700 to $750 million, into infrastructure that will support the development of housing, uh, with transit-oriented development housing, some across the, uh, along the rail line here in Honolulu, others, other um, transit-oriented uh, development um, in, uh, on other islands across the state. So you've got the governor's plan, which would really focus on housing, you've, which is what he wants. You've got the Ways and Means chairman saying, no, we don't really want to do that. We want to do something different, infrastructure that will allow the development of housing. So he's talking like sewers, maybe like in the stadium area. <laughs> Well, yes, there's all kinds of, yes, exactly, that sort of thing. I mean, even talking about um, Kewalo Basin, which has been an issue, Kakako Makai, it's it's close to the rail line, so uh, properties like that. But yes, lots of properties. Finally, then, you've got the subject matter expert in the Senate, uh, Stanley Chang, the senator who's chairman of the Housing Committee. He's got a whole bunch of different ideas. So again, you've got the Ways and Means chairman of the Senate saying one thing. You've got the housing expert in the Senate saying something totally different. Senator Chang, as you probably remember, um, has been talking for a long time about um, leasehold properties that would be sold at below market rates for people. So you could buy a condo for less than the market rate, be owned by the state, 
um, in perpetuity, but you could buy it a long-term leasehold. So that's one idea he's got. Another one now um, modeled after what he saw in a recent trip to Vienna with a delegation of people, and that is to develop uh, low-cost, subsidized rental housing, uh, which is very popular in Europe and in Vienna, and this is another one of his plans. But again, that's a totally separate set of bills than what we've seen from the WAM chair. Right. So you have the Vienna model, you have the Singapore model, and then you have a, a different ideas by different lawmakers as to how to spend the money and, and help with housing. Exactly. And a different idea from the governor, too. So. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see what comes out in the wash. But thanks so much for tracking this uh, for, this, for us. Uh, appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. That was reporter Stuart Yerton with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read uh, the full story at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Today we're looking back at the colorful history of a notable tree-lined street in Hilo. The idea to plant the trees came in 1933 when Hilo Park commissioners invited celebrated figures to plant saplings along the roadway. Uh, the first was the film director uh, Cecil B. DeMille, famed for the for his grand spectacle and historical sweep of his movies. He was in the islands at the time filming Four Frightened People, a story of castaways in the Malay jungle. Several members of the production got the planting started, and other celebrities soon followed. Within five years, some 40 trees had been planted, and you can still read their names on commemorative plaques. Babe Ruth, Amelia Earhart, Louis Armstrong all lent their efforts and their names to the tree-lined street, as did President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who visited Hawaii Island in 1934. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of this famous Hilo Street? We'll be back with it toward the end of the hour. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NareetHawaii.com. Today on The Daily, The Times film critic A.O. Scott on why after 23 years on the job, he's now done with the movies and what his decision can tell us about the new realities of the American cinema. I'm Michael Bobaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. 
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. in Waiholi Valley over lease rents have eased a tiny bit with the news earlier this month that 100 tenants will get a three-month reprieve on a rent hike. The state agency that oversees the area has been trying to raise the rents, which have not been hiked in decades for farms and only once in the last 25 years for residential. HPR reporter Kuvehirishi joins us with an update. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so we have seen an extension there. Uh, the previous deadline was April 1st for about uh, two-thirds of, of that uh, group of 100. So the residential tenants were facing an April deadline they got now till July. Uh, to, to negotiate rent hikes, which uh, right now are roughly about 560% increase, and that's proposed by Hawaii uh, Housing and, and Finance Development Corporation, uh, our sort of state affordable housing uh, agency, right? They took uh, this uh, these leases under their uh, care and have been... Uh, trying to, I guess, losing a lot of money operating Mm -hmm. this place. And so they were trying to see if the tenants could uh, come to on this. And I wanted to give folks some sort of historic background on this area of Kosuaiahole for folks who can easily drive along that coastline and sort of see where it becomes sort of country. Uh, Waiahole has that rich history of kalo cultivations, but following the overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom, there was sort of this... um, one man, McCandless, had gone ahead and acquired 200 acres in the valley. And fast forward to post-statehood Waiahole, uh, the ownership of the valley also consolidated along with some lots in uh, Waikane under McCandless's descendant, Elizabeth Marks, which some of you might remember. She was working with the developer Joe Pao, who's uh, in, um, known for creating enchanted lakes. Uh, and they were working on a proposed plan for some 4,000 homes in Waiahole, which was, um, I say, fought against by mm-hmm. most in the Valley. Seven-year-old John Rapoon was among them. Uh, he was a young college uh, graduate coming back uh, to Waiahole, farming with his brothers, trying to get away from it all. Here's what uh, Running away from the world that we saw unfolding, right? Post-statehood, Hawaii suddenly was ripe for development. It's just crazy because here we are living in this pretty rural community, agrarian community, surrounded by green space. Here we were living in a in a in a in an illusion that everything was fine, when actually development was coming at us. Standard Oil, Dillingham, Alexander and Baldwin, Lures and Cook, the big corporations, the big five, they had plans for our area, but the community wasn't at the planning table. And that history is is important to help kind of contextualize the current lease negotiations because what ends up happening in Waiahole uh, is that the communities fight back, as as Rapun mentioned, and convinced Governor Ariyoshi to step in, acquire that land, and stop that development. And the public purpose of that state's acquisition was to preserve that agricultural, rural nature of the valley. And part of that came in the form of these subsidized 
rents, uh, which haven't been uh, at this point, as we mentioned, able to cover operating costs in recent years. Chris Woodard, chief planner at HHFDC, says, uh, you know, ongoing operating losses in recent years are at $1.1 million a year. Uh, The state, uh, and this is taxpayer money, folks. Uh, The state has also invested about $20 million in capital improvements over the years for things like roads, bridges, the water system, and more. The key issue to settle within the next 6 to 12 months is to renegotiate all the lease rents up there. This is the first scheduled lease rent renegotiation for all 90-plus leases up there. So there has been no change in the level of rent paid by the lessees in Waiholi for 25 years. And the current lease rents are extremely low. They don't nearly cover our costs or begin to cover our costs. It's been difficult because we're starting at these very low rents. Yeah, so we're talking how low the rents on a 7,500-square-foot residential lot, which is probably about the smallest uh, that HHFDC has in the Valley for the past 25 years, has been something like $30 a month. Ag rates are even better at $100 an acre per year, plus an additional 500 if you've got a dwelling, you know. And Rapun says this rent hike was expected. Uh, they, he and 10 other farmers were able to agree on a rent hike of about 200% uh, for, yeah, 10 farmers. But there are another 70 or so tenants still in negotiations. Uh, Woodard says they were coming up with a subsidy program that they hope to roll out in this next three months. Uh, but if not nothing happens then it will be arbitration or, or mediation but one of the takeaways i want to say from this rent lease negotiation has been this idea that perhaps the valley needs an alternative ownership structure right that allows hhfdc to focus on affordable housing uh here's what it i think any reasonable person would agree that hhfdc is not the ideal entity to be owning and managing wildly valley in a way, how the um, lease rent renegotiation process has developed, I think, has helped all parties understand that that's definitely the case. You know, if we do something like that, we need to be cognizant of, again, the state's public purpose of the valley's acquisition to preserve the rural agricultural nature of the valley. And Rapun says, you know, it's not that they um, don't want to be under one entity. They just want uh, a seat at the table. And by that, I mean farmers, but also local ag interests. You know, throughout the conversations with folks on this story in Waiahole and Kahalu, uh, it was constantly repeated, you know, food security, mm-hmm. local ag. What can we do there? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. But then from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. I think that the leases are even cheaper than if they were under the Department of Ag. Right, right. So maybe not Department of Ag, but something like a community land trust where the the folks can work together. Because it's not just Ag in the Valley. There are a number of residential tenants. So all working together to figure that out. Yeah. All right. Well, very interesting. Interesting history and will be an interesting future. (laughs) But (laughs) thanks so much, Kubehi. We've been talking with HPR's uh, HPR's Kubehi Reishi. You can read this story and more stories on Hawaiian and cultural issues on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
Congress is working on a new federal farm bill, but Sharon Hurd, Governor Green's pick to head the Department of Agriculture, thinks that bill won't need all the needs of local farmers. Hurd wants to lay out a vision for the future of agriculture. HPR reporter Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Hurd about a state farm bill modeled after one in Pennsylvania. Uh, Hurd learned about it at a conference of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. I was in New York. I was with the, the previous chair, Phyllis, and she... Uh, was kind enough to invite me along, but here we are sitting in the audience and they go around the room. Everybody talks about a certain thing. The Pennsylvania representative gets up and talks about the Pennsylvania Farm Bill that took them three years to put together, but now they have $22 million. And I just recently went to the website. It's now up to $55 million that they've been able to get from their legislature specifically for the needs of the Farm Bill. Brilliant. I thought it was absolutely brilliant because while the National Farm Bill is really a wonderful document. It's a vehicle to fund the SNAP program, food nutrition programs that are nationally based, nationally focused. They don't really address a specific need for each state. In the, in the case of Pennsylvania, they wanted a workforce development specific to the crops and the, the industries that they have in their state. And I made me think, well, no other state grows cacao, no other state grows coffee, so the diseases that impact us, while we do get some attention in the National Farm Bill, we can make it more specific to Hawaii, our needs, our pests, if we come up with this similar farm bill. Right now, the Hawaii Farm Bill is a, in a twinkle in everybody's eye. It's not a real thing yet, but we're putting it together. It's something that everybody sees the need for, because right now we're in the legislative session. I'm sure all of us in ag that are engaged in ag get at least two or three emails a day in our inbox support this bill. This bill is very important to this issue or oppose this bill because people are so passionate about their causes. The Hawaii Farm Bill would distill it to one cohesive bill that serves all of agriculture. This is what the industry wants. You're creating a unified vision for what agriculture in Hawaii should and can be. And you intend to present this as, as the voice of farmers, the voice of agricultural stakeholders. How are you ensuring as you're developing this vision that everyone's needs and ideas are represented? Actually, it's, um, it's a good question. And the, the way I'm doing it is talking to you right now, is letting people know this is what we're thinking of. The Department of Agriculture should not be the one to put this together. It should be an ag group that continually maintains it, adds to it, develops it to where it serves all people, all areas. The reason I put this together is it's so much easier to edit and draft and revise a document that exists. It's not so easy to put together the document. I mean, you can talk for days, months, years, until somebody puts something on paper another person can say, oh, that's silly, you know, uh, but at least it's on paper, change it, right? So that's the, the intent of putting it together for others to criticize, add to, comment, um, because take the first section, land and water. I've got in there Act 90. Act 90 has been something that's been out there for 20 years. We wanted, we want to finally move Act 90 forward, transfer productive agricultural lands from DLNR to HDOA in a timely manner. We want to execute leases, but it's the public input that's going to say, well, once you transfer this land, who's going to get it? 
what are the terms of this lease? Basically, is it going to come with water? Is it going to come with infrastructure? These are the things that we have guidance on, but we want to hear from the public. We want to hear from the actual young farmer that graduates from Go Farm and says, you know, I'm ready. I have, I have my plan. So let us know. What do you need? Put it in the farm bill. You said that the Hawaii Department of Agriculture should not draft this bill, that it should be a community organization. Grassroots. Grassroots. Are you thinking of a particular organization? You need a command, right? You need an incident command person. So it is very important for somebody to lead this effort. I'm going to put the Hawaii County on the spot. A lot of the ag in the state comes out of Hawaii County. Director uh, Douglas Adams and his staff, Sarah Freeman, they were thinking perhaps, you know, we had some soft discussions about taking this on. So somebody like that could lead it, but work with the commodity groups, um, have public forums, have Zoom meetings, and populate the, the bill so that it serves as many people as possible. And here's the thing, the more information you have, the better decisions you make. I want to get into some of the line items in this document. You list an, a number of initiatives to try to beef up our domestic workforce, starting young activities for students in elementary school so that they know that agriculture is important, that there are opportunities for them here, as well as collaborating with institutes of higher learning and establishing magnet schools. Something else that's in this section is the idea of partnering with agencies that bring workers from outside Hawaii to provide labor to farming operations. What agencies and where outside of Hawaii are you thinking about in this line item? Okay, referring back to the same NASDA meeting, they had informational tables there. It was a gentleman who was uh, used to work as I believe in the Department of Labor. He was representing the USDA in attracting workers, and I'm going to say it was Guatemala. So on the first day, um, I stopped at his booth, very excited. He gave me, you know, his card and, and all that. Went back, talked to some people, came back to the booth the next day. He was sold out. All his workers were signed up. So there are agencies within the USDA, but also in the countries that have workers that want to come. And the idea is seasonal because Hawaii is a constant summer, right? But our coffee pickers have a particular season. I believe it's from August to November. But anyway, uh, fruits need to be picked in the summer. Macadamia nuts fall on the ground all year long. Um, you know, there's, there's a workforce that would be employed year round. We could certainly use that. Um, of course, worker housing would be an issue. I'm just saying that there are agencies out there that are looking and they show up at, uh, at surely this next NASA meeting will be in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm going to look for that kind of agency and say, you know what, um, let's talk. Let's, let's link you up with uh, the coffee industry. Let's link you up with the tropical fruit industry. Those workers, in some instances, folks who are on H-2A visas, for instance, can find themselves in exploitative situations. What's not in this iteration of the Hawaii Farm Bill is a discussion on worker protections. Do you see a role for that in envisioning the, in our the farm bill? I guess I guess it would be if the grassroots you know the grassroots that actually would be employing these that this workforce feels that that's where it is, and I know there's a big big problem with that. 
So that's an opportunity for, for grassroots institutes or grassroots initiatives in Hawaii to say, this is something we'd like to see. In fact, they, they, what they should, what, what I'm hoping they say is, this is what we'd like to engage in preventing. We'd like to be the agency that interviews these workers on a weekly basis, makes surprise checks to the farms, um, that kind of engagement with the farmer, you know, get everybody involved. What are you envisioning as the timeline for this Hawaii State Farm Bill to be passed? The Pennsylvania Farm Bill, I think he said, took two to two years to create. The third year they passed it. I'm hoping in three years, with the support of signature events like a an annual agriculture conference that is... Um, Zoomed in, you know, it's Zoom, not necessarily, we have a great ad conference every year, um, but this one would be specific to creation of this farm bill. And people would gather in the workforce development section, they'd gather in the data section, and they would say quite openly and aggressively what they need. I think we have some pretty passionate nonprofit humanitarian organizations that mean that want to do this, they're hungry to do this work. They just need the, the path. So if confirmed, I have four years. So if I can say that it, after four years we have this bill, hallelujah. Part of the Farm Bill is about making a practical and unified ask from lawmakers about what the agricultural system needs to succeed. And that is why the Pennsylvania State Farm Bill is so exciting, because they made an ask and they got funding in return. What kind of funding would you hope to see lawmakers respond? If you could throw out a number. I will throw out a number. $150 million, which triples what we get now. $150 million would support pretty much everything that we want in the next year. That was HPR Savannah Harriman Pote talking with Sharon Hurd, Governor Green's appointee to lead the Department of Agriculture about a state farm bill. On the next Fresh Air, the drag boom of the 1980s and 90s, which journalist Michael Musto described as the period when New York's club scene was filled with drag performers who perfected the art form. We talked with drag performer Linda Simpson, who documented that scene in over 5,000 photos. Tennessee's anti-drag law goes into effect next week. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Jennifer Lopez is a rom-com queen, but New York Magazine features writer Rachel Handler noticed a pattern in some of her movies. Not only had I seen like 10 movies where she got married, but four movies where she planned a wedding. That's kind of like your Jerry Seinfeld moment. Like, what's up with that? <laughs> what's up with that? Exploring the Jennifer Lopez wedding industrial complex canon next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You know, we've been taking a look back at various points this month, marking three years since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic shutdown. And this morning, we bring you some voices from the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And today we're focusing on the experience of healthcare workers. Sometimes we forget the amount of uncertainty and fear in those early days of COVID. We hear this morning from three medical professionals working in the areas of infectious disease, eye care, and mental health. UH Ethnic Studies professor Ethan Caldwell introduces the speakers. 
For the past three decades, Dr. Scott Hoskinson has served as an infectious disease specialist on Maui. During the pandemic, he wrote and maintained the Maui Memorial Hospital's COVID-19 recommendations, continually adapting the guidance from the Center for Disease Control, which constantly shifted as new understandings of the virus emerged. He had to contend with shortages in staff and equipment, along with the dangers that frontline workers experienced daily. It was and it still is an extremely stressful time for healthcare workers. The people admitted to the hospital, both those suspected of having uh, the coronavirus infection and those that actually had the coronavirus infection, required very intensive hands-on care by the staff. To go into these rooms, you literally had to gown up, you had to glove up, you had to put the appropriate mask on. You had to have somebody watch you when you came out of the room to make sure that you properly took off all of that equipment in the proper order so that you didn't contaminate yourself taking off the equipment if the patient had sprayed you with droplets or whatever else. So you can imagine nurses and others trying to care for these patients. They'd watch patients die before them uh, with this coronavirus. They were terrified for themselves and they were especially terrified for their family members uh, since they thought that they would, you know, potentially bring this virus home to their spouses and their kids and their mother and their dad and on and on like that. Then we had staffing shortages, as did everybody, uh, you know, with this type of intensive care. And so a lot of people ended up working overtime uh, and they read all kinds of things uh, online that just, uh, you know, scared them more, <laughs> more and more. As statewide director of vision programs for Project Vision Hawaii, or PVH, ophthalmologist Dr. Diane Bowen Coleman pivoted her team to respond to the immediate needs in the community as the pandemic set in. Early on, they provided meals to homeless children and youth and then shifted PVH's efforts towards testing and vaccination. One school actually reached out to me in late November. A vice principal reached out to me and wanted the school to be vision screened. So in early December, we went to this elementary school and we were in complete PPE, just like we were going to be doing COVID testing. It was our first school in nine months, uh, which is an extremely long time to go without being in, in a school and doing vision services. But we were there in full PPE. The school felt confident. I think that the students felt confident. I feel like the teachers felt confident in us being there and doing what we were doing. I also noticed that with subsequent schools, we started 2021, that these kids are already learning. These kids are learning that they can't be too close to the one in front of them, that when they get to the cafeteria, they have to sit where the X is and they can't sit anywhere else. And they know what door to go in and what door to go out of. I applaud the students and of course the teachers for teaching them. The students make it easier on everybody else by following the instructions of their teachers in the schools. They're just automatically keeping their distance and not touching things. Clinical psychologist Dr. David Lamb earned his PhD at the University of Hawaii at Manoa in 1975 and returned to Hawaii in 1994, where he practiced until his retirement. Dr. Lamb published several editorials on mental health during the pandemic. He focused on opportunities for building resilience that attended COVID-19's tragic spread. So that's part of the silver lining in terms of spending time at home that can be very stressful, but that also can provide some opportunities to do things that one has set aside and not done for a while. And COVID certainly has caused me and I think a lot of people to reorder our priorities, to at least think about what our priorities are, what is really important and what is not. Because prior to COVID, again, we're living such busy lives that we don't really have much chance to stop and not only smell the roses, but stop and think about whether our daily schedule, our daily routine, our habits necessary or productive. 
And being forced to stop and reflect can sometimes help us to see things that we otherwise might not. And the other thing now in terms of building coping skills is building resilience. And resilience is really having a storehouse or a repertoire of coping skills. The more coping skills we have, the more resilient we can become. Resilient to most people means being able to bounce back, right? No matter how many times you fall down. No matter how many times you fall down. That was Scott, uh, Dr. Scott Hoskinson, Dr. David Lamb, and Dr. Diane Bowen-Coleman with Ethnic Studies Professor Ethan Caldwell. They were reflecting on our experience during the pandemic. This oral history project is supported by the SHARP initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities through the American Council of Learned Societies. Okay, now it's time for your backyard quiz answer. Today, we asked you about a street in Hilo that is lined with trees and reminders of celebrated visitors to the islands. Film director Cecil B. DeMille, best known for the movie The Ten Commandments, got the ball rolling in 1934 and was soon followed by notable names like uh, Presidents Franklin D. Roosevelt and Richard Nixon, uh, as well as Louis Armstrong, Amelia Earhart, and Babe Ruth. While some of the trees were lost to the tsunamis that devastated the area, 50 still remain to this day. And their branches have grown into a thick canopy over the roadway and its accompanying sidewalks, making it popular for walking. It remains a Hilo landmark, and alongside the street, you'll find the Liliuokalani Gardens and a small footbridge that leads to Mokuala, also known as Coconut Island. It is known by many as Hilo's Walk of Fame, and its name is Banyan Drive, which was the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Congrats to our winner, Jeanette Abisa of Hilo. You got it right. And if you have an idea that would uh, make for a good quiz, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. In America, we have the wealth and the know-how to end poverty. So why don't we? The poverty rate has been incredibly stubbornly persistent, and I think it's rather shameful for the richest country in the history of the world. I'm Anthony Brooks. Sociologist Matthew Desmond says poverty persists in America because many of us benefit from it. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following The Daily. A few years ago, researchers looked at data on counties with the highest proportions of enslaved people in 1860. Then they looked at modern levels of anti-Black bias in those same counties. And what it tells us is this incredibly long shadow of history. The second in a two-part series on implicit bias, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7. A storytelling retreat on the Garden Isle has drawn close to a couple of dozen international storytellers. It just kicked off at Cocaine and will feature three public shows over the next week. Jeff Gere, along with Mark Jeffers of Kauai Storybook Theater, hatched the plan. It's mainly on Kauai, but there will be a side shadow puppet show here on Oahu at the end. We talked to Gere, and he shares what's in store for those who signed up for that retreat. It's a runaway hit. I've had to turn away people every night. People call, can I get in? Can I get in? Too late, too late. Three Koreans, a whole lot of Californians, a handful of people from the islands, and a handful from the East Coast. 
Okay, so is there a particular <laughs> theme to these mountaintop tales? How does that it's work? It's a retreat for storytelling exuberance, which includes lots of tours, local storytellers coming in to talk to them, but also three public concerts. One at the Coquet Lodge, one at the Zen uh, Temple down in Hanapepe, and one on the corner of the island going to Haena, the Anaina Community Park. They have a theater in it. Everybody on Kauai knows that I'm the guy visiting Kauai. My friend Mark is the guy who organizes all that Kauai stuff. I can't wait. How do you take 19 storytellers, all of which can talk for hours, and just divide them up into <laughs> little segments. Well, okay, you do the sacred tales, you do the adult stories at Coquet Lodge, you do the family show with the picnic. If you're not one of the lucky ones to have signed up for this retreat, you can go to a public event. You'll hear more stories from different places than you'll ever get on Kauai until we come again next year. Okay, and so tell us about some of these storytellers. <sighs> Each one is a story unto itself. New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. I've had a little evening celebration the night before. And there's a knock on the door. Oh, I forgot. A Korean delegation is coming over for lunch. I'm not ready. I'm hardly dressed. I'm shaking my eyes. Hi, they have gifts for us. Protocol. They're very excited. Uh, Maybe we should go to the Elks Club. They went back and got two more people. One of the guys plays a flute on a leaf. He picks a leaf off a tree and plays music on it for using it like a reed. (laughs) What a weird thing. One of the biggest Mormon producers is coming. There's three uh, different therapists coming, talking about therapy and storytelling. It's like you say, what color? Well, which color do you want to hear about? There's like 19 different storytellers coming. Well, it's really an opportunity to showcase the art of storytelling. And you've got these master storytellers that are just going to bear their souls. They are. And they're all to a theme, and they're broken up into thirds. We're going around Kauai on different excursions, and then let's do a show. Okay. (laughs) We love doing shows. It's so exciting. So talk about the ones that the general public will be able to see. The story, Hui in the Park? That's That's the third one for families. It's a picnic in Kilauea. And basically, they're telling stories with uh, some... That's that one time they wanted Hawaii stories. So I'm going to be telling a a little legend that I heard from Hannah Kaniakoa Basso, who I used to work with teaching. She taught hula, and she said, Haena, my family comes from Haena. You know, I heard a story on a picnic bench. They say it's true. And here we go. (laughs) Okay. A true supernatural tale. What island doesn't have them? Mm-hmm. And that's one that I was told here on Oahu, but it's on Kauai in the North Shore. Yep, these are just a little tidbit. There's also a Sacred Tales on a Sunday. On the 26th, Sacred Tales. So all those tales in the Zen temple after they have their meditation. So it's at 11 o'clock. And the night before, it's adult stories up in the Koke'e Lodge. And that's with a buffet dinner. I can't wait for all this. It's like I'm opening Christmas packages, and they're all chock full of different people doing different stories. One of the stories coming from a woman from Utah is how I know that my mother is an alien poodle from outer space. Okay. What? (laughs) I want to hear that. Is this the first time that you've held this type of retreat? I've done conferences in Waikiki. I've done retreats on 
Kualoa's Beach. I did one when it got canceled when the city pulled their permit because they said, you can't do it. I had the Not Camp Tour where we chose public venues all around the city and on, around the island, actually, and went and it just announced it and people showed up if they wanted to and it was all free. I've done lots of different permeations. This is the first time I've gone to a different island with another partner. And I was stunned with the response. It didn't take much trouble to get people to say, what, I'm in snow, I'm in Missouri. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you bet I want to come to Kauai (laughs) and meet the people and tell stories. Yahoo! Yeah, count me in. (laughs) And so, gosh, so you've got this whole um, week of of, uh, of cold events going on on Kauai, but then you come back to Oahu, and uh, what can we expect? <laughs> As I've been preparing the camp, I've also been preparing Jataka tales. Now, Jataka tales are the tales they tell in Buddhism to teach, are teaching tales, like Aesop's fables with a little parable and a, and a lesson, purportedly to be tales of the Buddha before he was the Buddha, when he was an animal incarnation. But they're little teaching tales, and they're easy to tell, but the ramifications are profound. And I collected them. I was over in a friend's house who rented the uh, surrounding buildings around a temple, but she'd go in there and clean. She goes, you want to see the temple? Yeah. So one night, she opened it up, turned on the bare bulb in this tiny little temple, Holualoa. And the, the way, then she lit incense on the altar, which was screened with a sort of permeable screen mesh around it. You could still see through it to the golden Buddha. The light was lighting the Buddha. She bent down, lit some incense. Her shadow fell on the other side of the screen with the smoke from the Buddha and the incense going up. And I was on the other side, and I just thought, I want to do a shadow puppet show of Jataka tales in the temples of Hawaii. And on Sunday, April 2nd, at the Jodo Mission, right off the freeway if you drive by, but you got to go around Makiki Street, I'm going to do it. And that was Jeff Gear talking to us about a shadow puppet show planned for the Jodo Mission here on Oahu, and as well as a uh, number of public uh, story time shows with a hui of storytellers who are gathered for a retreat on Kauai. Look for links about the shows on the conversation page of our website later today. Okay, we're all out of time. Up tomorrow, uh, we plan to hear from the area councilman for downtown Honolulu about concerns for the area. Got some questions about something you heard on our show? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard? Find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.